We, as Christabel stated earlier, have been in this sermon series the last few weeks. We'll conclude it by the grace of God today. Um, really talking about this whole idea of refocus, and it, it really was brought about <clears throat> through what most of us do at the beginning of the new year. Uh, we try to restructure our lives. We say, hey, these are the things I hope to accomplish this year. And we start out, usually, at least if you're like me, very energetic and very passionate, only by the time February rolls around to say, what was that that I was talking about January 1st? Um, well, I pray that we not do that. I pray that the things that we have talked about have been incredibly impactful for you um, because the focus that we, uh, I think, have probably been shifted away from that I pray that we are being refocused on as we started out in Isaiah 40 a few weeks ago is looking at who God is. Um, I remind you that uh, knowing God is the most important thing in the world. And this God of the universe who has created all we, all we see, know, and even think about has revealed himself to us in his word. Uh, he has let us know his personality, his attributes. And those, as they are studied, change us when I realize that this God who is so magnificent, so above all, chooses to make himself known to me. Uh, John actually tells us that this great God wrapped himself in flesh and made his abode, his, he tabernacled with us. Uh, I don't know about you, but that's pretty impressive that God would want to come and sit next to me uh, and not just sit next to me, but actually give his spirit that uh, he might live in me. Uh, what a wonderful fact that is. Uh, last week, we looked at uh, once we know who God is, we have a right view of ourselves, or at least we should. And we began to look at some of these early sections of Colossians, at least in Colossians 3. And we talked about what our identity is and who we are. And from that, once we understand who we are, we really should have an understanding of what we're called to do, that we're to set our mind back in verse 2 on things above, uh, on things that are concerning Christ ought, ought be the things that concern us, not the things of this world. And if you're like me, that's the consistent battle. Am I going to find myself in the fray of life so dominated by it and its real issues. Physical issues are real. They're painful. They're deep. Emotional issues are real. They're painful. They, they're deep. But am I going to stay fixated on those things and allow it to distract me from the first thing? Looking at God. Understanding who he is. He's sovereign. He is all-powerful. He's providential. He's loving. He's gracious. He's patient. But the things of this world say, no, he's not. I am. I rule, I govern, I dictate what you do and how you should feel. And I say, no, it's him and him alone. That's the battle. It's probably the battle for you right now. Hey, it's 1040 and the dude's just getting up. I know what that means for me, right? That could be a battle as opposed to, Lord, speak to me this morning through your servant, David. I, I pray that that's your posture. Well, this morning, we move from looking up at God, looking in, understanding who I am, to looking out. Community. And I'm going to suggest to you that before we can go and think about the community out there, we've got to think about the community in here. Who are we? What are we called to do? Colossians is written to a church. It's written to a group of people, the ecclesia, the ones who have been called out of the world and into his marvelous light, into a family called the family of God. Uh, some of us remember April 29th, 1989. What's sad in this room, some of you weren't even born. <laughs> April 29th, 1989, in Los Angeles, some of us remember what's commonly referred to as the L.A. riots. 
uh, soon after those police officers were acquitted for the beating of Rodney King, there was a riot in L.A. And some of you remember that a spokesman got up during the riot, Rodney King himself, and said, uh, and asked a question of the rioters. Some of us still remember it. Can't we all just get along? And what's fascinating about that riot is the answer to that was a resounding, no, we can't. What's rather sad is that if we were to ask that question of most churches, this answer would be the same. No, we can't get along. Now, I was going to, in terms of sermon illustrations, but we got too many visitors have been coming in lately, so I've got to be on my best behavior, so I'll at least give those visitors at least two more weeks. I was going to take a poll and ask, you know, raise your hands if you've ever been part of a church split. Raise your hands if you've ever been part of a serious, serious battle within the body of Christ. If you've ever had real issues where we just wanted to walk away, maybe some of us have been in ministries where there's actually come to fisticuffs. Uh, but I didn't want to embarrass anyone because we're all the nice people. Those people stayed at those churches. We're the good people that came here, right? Because that would never be us. And we laugh and we joke, but... It doesn't take us very long to reflect upon maybe some of our histories or what we read about in the newspapers, and we're appalled at what we see in churches. And it seems as if God's people can't get along. It seems as if God's people can't really do what God has called us to do and be, be united. I mean, one of the clear calls in John 17 is Jesus says, I want them to be one, Father, I want to display our love on them that they might display their love to one another. And as we look around this room, and I really, man, I pray as we begin this service, those of you who have been here for a while, who do you have animosity with? Who are the people in this room right now, maybe in your pew, that you were thinking about, like, man, I want to get out of here. This might get a little hot. Because there's people in this room I'd rather not be around. There's people in this room I actually don't even like. I pray that God would minister to our hearts very deeply if that's the posture of your heart this morning. Colossians 3, verse 5, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Two major points I want to make this morning. The description of those who have been hidden in Christ and then the actions of those who have been hidden in Christ. What does it look like to live the sanctified life, the set-apart life in a community? And if you're like me, I was like, Lord, I'm good with the first part. Put me on my island with the grill and my Bible, and I'm good. But that's not what he has given us to do. He has called us to be in community, to live with one another. Why? So that his name might be manifest. And why does he do that? He takes all these different kinds of people from all different kinds of background, gives us clear marching orders so that the world would look at us and say, oh my goodness, how can those kinds of people accomplish it? Let me sit and tell you how the God of the universe has changed our hearts and give us a collective a collective love for him 
and a collective love for you. That we want to let our light so shine before the world that men see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Wouldn't that be wonderful? And I want you to think about, are the things that we're going to talk about in this sermon even possible? Is this just pie in the sky kind of stuff? That Paul says it, but he can't really expect it. I would suggest to you he says it because he means it. And we ought walk in it. Chrysostom says these words, the new self, the Christian community formed by and in Christ transcends boundaries of religious background, ethnicity, and social status, and any other boundary drawn from this world that we might like to draw. Whatever our worldly background or status, we are all now, excuse me, we all now have a fundamental identity determined by Christ and the people of Christ to whom we belong. In other words, you cease being you, you are now part of the we. The community of believers, and as I stated in, in the first point, that you are hidden in Christ. You are consumed. You've been enveloped by him back in verse 3. For you have died and your life is hidden in Christ. That's who you are as a believer in Jesus. Paul talks about these first couple words, the description of those who have been hidden in Christ. And look at what he says there at the first part of verse 12. Three things he says about us. So, as those who have been, so he is assuming you are hidden in Christ, you're a believer, you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. As a result of that, look at what he, how he describes this. You're chosen by God, you're holy, and you're beloved. That's a description of who we are. You're chosen by God. Moses testifies of this whole idea of being chosen in Deuteronomy 7, look at what he says about the nation of Israel. The Lord did not set his love on you or choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh the king. Moses testifies to Israel, don't sit back and boast and think because you're, you're this or you're that, that you can somehow pat yourself on the back. It's not why he chose you. And brothers and sisters, for these believers in Colossae, they're being reminded it's nothing you did or could have done or who you are simply because God chose to save you. Jesus says these words in John 15, 6, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask in my Father's name, he may give to you. Paul testifies in 2 Timothy 2.10, For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain a salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. Titus 1, verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of the chosen of God. Ephesians 1, verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because he has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. Do you see who's working monergistically? God did the work. He chose us in Christ for his glory. He reminds them of this. You have been chosen, believer. What's very, very sad about verses like this is that some will have consternation with it. 
Uh, we don't like God's sovereign choosing sometimes. I like to think about it. His elect. Throughout the Bible, brothers and sisters, I, I pray that you not believe my testimony. Believe the testimony of Christ. Believe the testimony of Paul. What's amazing, if you study Jewish literature for any amount of time, they completely were down with the doctrine of election. They understood that the nation of Israel was elected out of all the other peoples of the world. Their problem with, the, with election was, it's only Israel. And Jesus comes and says, no, it's for those who believe, those who are trust, those I call to myself, who are also outside Israel. We looked at that during Christmas time, right? Matthew's ladies that were there who were Gentiles. And the desired effect here is that we would be grateful, humbled. We would ask ourselves the question, God, why did you choose someone like me? But not only does he say, I won't stay there for very long. He says, you're not only chosen, you're holy. Now, he's not talking about morally pure. That's an expectation. But here he's talking about that you've been set apart. He realized that when God called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light, he called you out of the kingdom of this world. He called you unto himself. He brought you out of your earthly family into his family. You're different. You're set apart for him. Set apart from the world. Set apart to God. You're his. You're owned by him. It's okay to smile. He's a good owner. He's a good master. He's a good king. He's a good sovereign ruler. You're his. You're chosen. You're holy. You're set apart for him. I don't know if you noticed this next one, but man, I'd love to get, it got good to me when I was studying it. I'm beloved. You're beloved by the God of the universe. You're chosen by him. You're holy to him, and you're beloved by him. That's why that song we just sang, Jesus, thank you, your love, your great mercy, your great peace. You're the lover of my soul. I'm beloved by God. That's a description of those who have been hidden in Christ, they're chosen, they're holy, they're beloved of God. But he doesn't stop with just the description. He talks about the actions that are to follow those who have been hidden in Christ, starting, uh, beginning in verse, the last part of verse 12. Put on, beloved, holy, chosen of God, put on a heart of five things that we see. And what's amazing is if we were to go back, and we won't, to verse 8, there are five things that mark those who are focused on the world, those who are focusing on the flesh. He changes that and says, no, that's not what you focus on. These are the five things that you focus on. Put on a heart. Some translations say what? Maybe yours says clothe yourselves. Take, take off something. Put on these things. Put them on your heart. We're to put on Christ in Romans 13, 14. We're putting on the idea of a new self, which has been shaped in Christ, which is modeled in Christ. And look what it's marked by, these five things. Number one, he says, the person who has identified with Christ, who is this new person, has virtues that characterize Christ. In other words, we look like Jesus. First thing he mentions is compassion. Literally, in the KJV, it says bowels of mercy. It talks about the inner inner self. It's referring to the inner parts of a person. And here, it's not necessarily talking about the physical aspect, but the emotional, the seat of emotions for a person. Put on this compassionate heart. Become compassionate as Christ was compassionate. 
Matthew 9, 36, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited. Christ sees the world lost, distressed and dispirited, and he has compassion on them. I think sometimes Christians see the world and don't want to display any compassion. And I don't know if you're like me, you say, well, they're getting what they deserve. It's not Christ. Christ shows compassion on them. They're distressed, dispirited like a sheep without a shepherd. We live in a lost world and we're amazed at the things that we see in our world. But what they need to see witnessed is compassion. I'm not saying we miss the truth or somehow stay away from the truth, but we are to see and show compassion. Jesus says these words, you know it in Matthew 11, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle and humble of heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is, is light. Christ shows compassion towards those who are broken. Francis Schaeffer says these words, biblical orthodoxy without compassion is surely the ugliest thing in the world. In other words, I've got my theological I's dotted and T's crossed, yet I show no compassion. Man, I can answer all the theological answers. I know my Bible A to Z, but I don't show, show compassion for people. Schaeffer suggests it's the ugliest thing in the world. Paul starts with compassion, there's bowels of mercy, where can be compassionate towards one another. Secondly, he moves on to kindness. Kindness is the virtue that we see ultimately described in God. Psalm 119.68, for you are good and you do good. I love this in Titus 3, 4, and 5. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. God's kindness was displayed in a man, Jesus. I'm going to show kindness to you. I'm going to give you a Savior. He has appeared. He is before you. Receive my kindness. How kind are we, brothers and sisters? It's not really a word we almost use in our world anymore, right? That's a kind person. That's a compassionate person. That's almost seen as weakness. But yet we are to be marked by a community that is compassionate, that has a heart of, of, of kindness. And we'll just skip the third one because we've all got that one figured out, right? Humility. Hey, we got that one figured out. Should I just skip that? I get a couple of amens. Just skip that one, Pastor. Anybody who has ever studied humility in the first century, this was not seen as a virtue for Romans. This was actually seen as something negative. You were not to be humble. Uh, I think we're very Romanish in our world today, right? Uh, we love prideful people. Uh, prideful people love themselves. They love them some me. Love themselves and love to talk about themselves. You know that pride. This is what I've done. This is where I've been. Let me tell you about me. Yeah, we'll talk about you later. Let me tell you about me. Uh, when I think of pride, I think of Muhammad Ali. Float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. When you heard the story, Muhammad Ali's on a, on a plane. Wait, or excuse me, not the waitress. The, the stewardess comes and says, hey, put on your seatbelt. And he says, Superman don't need no... Don't need no seatbelt. She goes, Superman don't need no plane either. <laughs> Humility is a Christian virtue. We ought to take the form of our Savior who humbled himself. Philippians tells us what? 
to the point of death, even death on a cross. Philippians 2 verse 3 says it more clearly. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. Listen to this, brothers and sisters. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. You know, look at the person to your left or your right and say, you're more important than me. That is not fanciful. This is what the Spirit produces in a person. It's not about me. It's about you, sister. It's about you, brother. That's what humility says. I don't have to exercise my right or what I think is my right over you. I'm humble before you. I value others above myself. It's not looking to my own interest. But isn't that what the church is marked by? They made me mad. I can't believe they changed the carpet. My mama put it in that carpet. It's about me. It's about my ways. I can't believe they, it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about Christ. We're to be marked by humility, kindness, compassion, gentleness. Gentleness is, according to the Greek lexicon for New Testament words, the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. Read that again. The quality of not being overly impressed by the sense of one's self-importance. And I think I'm pretty important. I think I'm pretty special. That is not gentleness. Jesus, who is gentle and humble at heart. We are to be marked by a community that is gentle. Ephesians 4, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, I, a prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, sowing tolerance for one another in love. I am gentle with you because I don't have to exercise anything over you. I am not that important. I'm gentle. Community is gentle, it's humble, it's kind, it's compassionate. And finally, Paul says, be patient. Oh, I'm going to step back because I was going to skip a verse here for sake of time, but I'm going back to it because I think it's important. Galatians 6 verse 1 talks about this gentleness. But listen to this, please. Brethren, if anyone is caught in a trespass, someone is caught sinning, caught in a sin, you who are spiritual, you're mature, you're not in that same offense. Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Now, you might say, well, David, why do you pause there? Because I've heard this about the Christian church. We're the only ones that shoot our wounded. In other words, if a person is caught in an offense that is a serious sin, we come in and give them both barrels. As opposed to seeking to restore them in a spirit of gentleness, saying, there but for the grace of God, go I. I'm not saying don't deal with their sin. I'm not saying Matthew 18 is not applicable. It may be applicable. But you restore one with the spirit of gentleness and humility. I came up with churches, man, they bring people up front. Confess your sin to the people. I'm just like, where's that in the book? If I sin against George, it's between George and I. I don't have to, or George sins against me. It's probably more likely it's that's going to be the case, right? <laughs> I say that because I love him. <laughs> I don't have to parade him up front. Here's how I sinned against the pastor. He sinned against me. Why would I have to bring him up front? I don't get that mentality. If he's confessed to me, it's, it's handled. 
But I don't know where we get this attitude of shaming people. Where does that come from? Surely not the scriptures that I read. Restore one the spirit of gentleness. We're called to be a gentle community, finally. Patience. And we see patience and brothers and sisters, whenever we think of patience and um, one of my accountability partners eventually we'll, we'll be in a conversation about someone or something and we'll go through it and we are defending our case, man, and, and we're, this is why we should go get them and we're just like, yes, and the spirit breaks and usually one of us too and we're just like, but do you remember how patient God is with us? It's like, why did you say that? Brothers and sisters, how patient has God been with you? How patient was God with Israel? He was incredibly patient, and we ought to be patient with one another. It doesn't mean we don't confront sin. Please don't misunderstand me. But we ought to be patient. We are still on the road to sanctification. Has anybody reached, is, is anybody done yet? None of us are. Be patient with one another. These five things are to mark at the individual, and it's also to mark the community. Now, let's pause for a second. If you're not from this church... Ask yourself this question. If you're in this church, ask ourselves this question. Do these, these five things mark Bethel? Let's be honest. Are we a compassionate, kind, humble, gentle, patient community of believers? I'll take feedback. No, we're not. We're not. That doesn't mean we're, we're, we're terrible. But we haven't arrived there to work all these things out perfectly. My point is there's still room for improvement. There's still room for growth. So we are to take on this heart of Jesus, which is marked by these things. Secondly, I just got to keep going. Wow. And we're asking ourselves, does this mark our community? Does it mark me? Look at verse 13. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you. Now it's personal. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. What sin did God keep out here and say, I got all of them except this one. You're forgiven of all of them except this one. Which one did he keep out for you, brothers and sisters? None. But do we do that to one another? Look at the comparison. Just as he forgave you, you're to forgive one another. Anybody here like to hold a grudge? Come on, man. Don't Come on, y'all. Thank you, thank you, my brother. I got one. <laughs> we like to hold grudges. You've wronged me. I may say, verbally, I've forgiven you, but in my heart, I'm still holding it against you. You know how I know that? Because if I see you coming this way, I'm going the other way. I see you at the mailbox. Oh, hey, security, man, you guys are doing a wonderful job. I'm going to turn and go the other way. You got unforgiveness harboring in your heart? Paul says, beyond all these things, excuse me, um, forgive anyone just as the Lord forgave you. Secondly, he says, beyond all these things, put on love. We're to forgive like Jesus forgave. Bearing with one another. C.S. Lewis says these words, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. We see next the love of Jesus. What does he go on to say? 
Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Andrew Murray says, our love to God is measured by our everyday fellowship with others and the love it displays. We're forgiving one another. We have the heart of Jesus and we're loving one another in community. Jesus says in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give you that you love one another. Listen to this. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. 1 John 3, 17 says, but whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? In other words, I can say outwardly, hey, I love you, but if I'm withholding something that you might need, am I really displaying the love of Christ? Again, are we marked by community? Has the heart of Jesus that is forgiving like Jesus, that's loving like Jesus? We go on, the peace of Jesus. Is there peace in our place? Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to indeed you were called into one body and be thankful. Are we a thankful, peaceful community? I guess it depends on who you talk to on any given day, right? On what has bothered me or who has bothered me in the midst of our fellowship. And can I honestly sit here and say, I have peace with all my brethren in this room. As you peruse this room, I have peace with my brothers and sisters in here. Yes, I have peace with God, Romans 5 verse 1. But do I have peace? Do we have peace with each other? Paul says the community of God, for those who have been hidden in Christ, have peace with one another. They have love for one another. They have forgiveness for one another. And they have the heart of Christ. Finally, or two more, the word of Jesus. Verse 16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Look at that fellowship. Look at what's going on. They're they're singing. The the word of Christ is dwelling in them. They're memorizing the word of God and the word of God is coming out of their lips. It's dwelling, it's every part of their being. I I, I love to speak to bibliocentric people. If you know what I mean by that, everything that comes out of their mouth is Bible. Yeah, and I remember this was said in here. And I remember when Paul did this. And I remember when Prophet Micaiah did this. And you remember when Samuel said this. And you remember when Abraham did this. And remember when this happened to the nation of Israel. Remember how God showed himself strong here. You ever been with a person in Walmart and you're talking about God? And Jesus came in and he did this to the leper. Do you remember what he said to the woman at the well? And those are the most edifying conversations in the world. Or, man, this team, these politics, it's nothing. Let the word of Christ richly dwell in your fellowship. Some of you are visitors. It's like, man, you guys do a lot of Bible stuff. Yep. (laughs) You guys sing a lot about Jesus. Yep. This fellowship is marked by... Christ richly dwelling in their midst with wisdom teaching. It's not about just coming in and getting emotions. Some of you grew up like I did, man. You'd walk out of the service being highly emotional. Ooh, that was good. And you got your hearts beating. Oh, that was good. Ooh, what was good about it? It was good. I felt the spirit of the Lord was there. But what did he say to you? Good. What did you learn? What did you walk away with? Paul says this fellowship is marked by wisdom, teaching, and admonishing. What is admonishing? Coming alongside another brother to 
to help them, edify them, strengthen them. Admonish could be a little stronger than that too. Hey, brother, man, I saw how you treated your wife. What's up with that? Man, you spoke kind of harshly to her. Man, is that how you speak to your children? Man, why would you say that about another brother that's in this fellowship after the sermon we just heard? Why, why would you say that about him or her? That's admonishing. What's my, what, what's my point in saying that? So I can look good? No, so it doesn't take away from the unity of the fellowship. That's admonishing. With one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness, where? In your hearts. That's that Ephesians 5, being filled with the Spirit, right? Singing and making melody in your hearts. Ought to be a little tune in our heart about how good God is, how, how thankful we are, how faithful he is. There ought to be something inside us that comes out, that bubbles forth. Amen. It's produced by the Spirit. This is happening in the fellowship, the community of believers. Imagine that. It, 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 I say imagine it, but for most of us, we can't, can we? Because we haven't seen this worked out in Christian community. It's been foreign to us. Ought not be so. Singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. I don't know if you noticed that. End of verse 15, be thankful. Thankfulness in your heart to the end of verse 16. Christian people ought to be thankful people. If I were to pass around this mic of what you're thankful for today, we should be here all week long before we even get out of the front row. We got so much to be thankful for, brothers and sisters. How many of it's eight? When we just, it's so, we've eaten, we, we can drink, medical care, finances, so much God has provided for us. He closes with this in verse 17. Wow. Some of you will get the notes later that I'll, you guys know I'm cutting. Whenever I see my finger moving, I'm cutting. <laughs> verse 17. Whatever you do, in word or in deed, in your actions or your speech, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. I don't think we think about that verse very much. Do all my, can I say whatever action I'm doing, I can do this to the glory of God? It's verses like this, and I know it's simplistic because I've confessed to you before that I keep my driving most of the time on Tuesdays because I'm like, can I drive like this to the glory of God? Can my actions match up with, can I do this in Jesus' name, in his power, in his authority? Now think about that for a second as you sit here. Is your, the actions of your life marked by that? Now he says deed, or I went to deed, but he also says word. How about I can say what I'm going to say in Jesus' name? If we thought that way, how might our language change? Brother said radically. I'm going to gossip on about another brother or sister in Jesus' name. It wouldn't even fit, would it? So let's think about this deeply maybe this afternoon. Is my life marked by verse 17? Whatever I do, I'm doing in Christ's name, both in word and in deed. 
giving thanks, third time, through him to God the Father. So let me close with this. We talked about the description of those who have been hidden in Christ. Three things, right? They're what? Chosen, holy, beloved. We've talked about the actions of those who have been hidden in Christ. Heart of Jesus, marked by forgiveness, love, peace, the word of Christ, the power of Christ. Does that mark our fellowship? It does not mark our fellowship perfectly. It will one day mark our fellowship perfectly. Where's that going to be? In glory. Until then, we strive, we put on a heart of these things. I'll close with this question. What are you doing to help us do that? What role do you play in helping us collectively put on a heart of compassion? How are you helping another brother or sister? How is another brother or sister helping you put on a heart of compassion? Ultimately, it's your responsibility. But God has put us in community to help, hopefully achieve, begin to grow in what he wants us to be. What role does he want you to play here? Maybe you've been a visitor for a long time and you said, I've never committed to this church. I want to become a member of this church because I want this church to hold me accountable. That's what membership's all about. It's not just putting your name on a roll and being able to vote. That's, yeah, okay, we'll give you that, whatever. That's simplistic and that means nothing. What true membership says is I want this leadership, I want the people that are here to hold me accountable. And I want to help hold them accountable. I want to be a part of this. If that's you, what keeps you from joining this church? And if we're not the church for you, join a church where you can go and do that. That you might grow. These are not just casual ideas that Paul is talking about. This is what the church is to be. The descriptions of those who are hidden in Christ, does it describe you? The actions of those who have been hidden in Christ, does it describe you and me? If not, what are we doing to bring about a change for his glory? Let's pray. Father, in and of ourselves, we can accomplish nothing. Apart from you, we are lost. Apart from your spirit, we can never walk in the things that we just outlined. The Apostle Paul understands that. May we truly, truly be who you've called us to be. Walk in who we are as Christians. Chosen, holy, and beloved. And may we put on the actions and the attributes of our, of our Savior. All for your glory. Let us stop making excuses for living in the flesh. For speaking as if we're still in the flesh. The base things of this world. And let us truly be about our Father's business. Pursuing holiness. For your glory. We pray all these things, Lord, and we submit our lives to you. In Jesus' name we pray.